Good morning. Everybody doing okay? You guys good? Good? 10 o'clock, you guys should be awake and alert. The 8 o'clock, I'm like, good morning. They're just kind of like looking at me. I'm just kind of looking at them. We're all still trying to figure it out because it's early. Uh, but you guys have been up for a while, so... Anyways, glad you guys are here this morning. Um, we are working through the Gospel of John. We've got a lot of ground to cover today, so um, I'll get into this relatively quickly. If you're new here, though, this particular book of the Bible that we're in, written by one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, mainly about the, the life and ministry of Jesus, uh, kind of a three-and-a-half-year kind of snapshot of Jesus' life. John was one of the closest um, to, to Jesus, the Bible calls him the beloved one. If I was writing a book of the Bible, I would also call myself the beloved one. Uh, just throwing that out there. But we started, uh, <laughs> we started chapter six last week. We didn't get very far because there's two very, very famous stories that, that John writes about in chapter six. One is the feeding of 5,000, which we, we learn was probably more in the neighborhood of about 12 to 15,000 because they only counted the men. But, but regardless of what the exact number was, Jesus miraculously fed a, a huge group of people. And that's important because they're gonna come up again in the lesson today. The second miracle that we read about that's very, very famous in the Bible is Jesus walking on water. As his disciples are going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus goes his own way and then meets them out, quite literally, in the middle of a storm in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and a very, very famous story. So these two lessons bring up two different fears that we have as humans. The fear of not having everything we need, provision, and the fear of drowning. And I don't mean that as a literal drowning, I mean that as being overwhelmed. Uh, feeling hopeless, uh, drowning in despair, drowning in confusion, whatever that drowning may, may look like in our lives. It's a fear that a lot of us have. What we talked about last week was we, we have no reason to fear if we have a relationship with Christ. That's kind of the whole point of the story of Jesus walking on water was to teach them, you, you don't have to be afraid. As long as you're looking at me, you have nothing to be afraid of. Uh, this week, we're gonna talk about something that we talk about quite a bit in this church. We're gonna talk about fulfillment, right? And how we often take a path of doing what we wanna do in the hopes of finding fulfillment it doesn't work out well for us. And so we're gonna talk about, of course, that our only means of fulfillment is Jesus. Very, very simple stuff. Again, there's a lot of ground we have to cover today. Jesus is gonna be talking to the same group of people that were there for the feeding of the 5,000 plus. Some of the religious leaders are gonna slip into the crowd. And um, we get to talk about cannibalism today. You didn't think you'd get to do that in church. That's, that's fun, right, cannibalism? Not the act of. Talking about cannibalism in church is fun. We're gonna talk about that today. Um, yeah, all right. This is why I don't do opening monologues because <laughs> they tend to go poorly. So you should have got a note stand out when you walked in. Every, everything I'm gonna say will be in there. Everything will be on the screen. If you have a smartphone, the Experience Community app, just click on Sermon Notes. You got everything right there. If you're old school and have a physical copy of the Bible, I'm old school, I like books. Uh, we're in the New Testament. We're in the, the fourth book, sixth chapter, 22nd verse is where we're gonna start. Let me pray, we'll dive into this and um, we'll cover some interesting stuff today, okay? Glad you guys are here. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much, Lord. I thank you for everyone in this room this morning, God. I thank you, God, for uh, the opportunity to get to do what we're about to do, Lord, to read about you, to study, and um, Lord, to hopefully grow closer to you. I pray, God, that you bless our church. We pray, Lord, that you keep your hand on all the churches in our community, God. Pray that you bless our other, uh, our other campuses and the churches in those communities. And 
Father, our ultimate prayer is always that everything we do today, that it honors you and makes you proud. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm gonna read a little bit. We will go back and we will break it down, okay? Here's what it says. It says, the next day, the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat. They also saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone off alone. Some boats from Tiberias came near that place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and they went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, that means teacher, when did you get here? Jesus answered, truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. Well, what can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. What sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you, they asked. What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Okay, so this is the same group of people, maybe not all of them traveled, but this is the same group of people who just got miraculously fed by Jesus uh, they see Jesus' disciples get into a boat. We find out in the last lesson that Jesus got away from these people because they had the wrong motives. They wanted him for the wrong reasons. So his disciples get in a boat. They take off across the sea. Jesus goes another way. They both end up on the other side. We know how Jesus got there, but they didn't know how Jesus got there because they didn't see him get into the boat. And they see him and they go, hey, when did you get here? And so we have to remember these people who are seeking out Jesus were doing it with, the, with, with improper intentions. They were, they were kind of half-heartedly seeking Jesus. They were, they were in it more for themselves. So they ask this question, when'd you get here? And Jesus does not answer that question. Instead, he talks about their motives. And he says, listen, you guys are looking for food. They were literally looking for another miraculous feeding. You guys are looking for food and that food's going to go bad. He goes, I encourage you to look for food that is eternal, food that lasts forever. And so like many people today, these people sought out Jesus, not for Jesus, not for the message of Jesus, not for what they could learn for Jesus. They were seeking out Jesus so their needs would be met. They were seeking out Jesus because they wanted Jesus to affirm their cultural preferences. They wanted Jesus to affirm the way that they lived. And we still do this today. There are a lot of people, none of you, of course, there are a lot of people who they only pursue Jesus because there's something in it for them. And that's what we are seeing with this group of people here. 
So the second question they ask would be a really, really great question if it wasn't disingenuous. They said, well, hey, what can we do to earn God's favor? What work can we do to perform that, that, that will get God on our side? And as religious people, they thought that they could earn their way into God's grace. They could earn their way into salvation. And Jesus came to tell them basically the exact opposite. He goes, look, the only work that you can do is believe in the one that God has sent. They're saying, what can we do? What can we do? And Jesus says, just trust me. Just be here for me. Believe in me, the one that God has sent. That's the work that the Father wants you to perform. And then the crowd asks a third question, which is pretty, pretty crazy when you think about it. In, in typical human form, they go, okay, so we're supposed to believe in you. What are you going to do to convince us to do that? These are the same people who saw Jesus take five loaves of bread and a couple of sardines, if you weren't here last week, sardines, a couple of sardines and feed 12 to 15,000 people. And then they sit back and go, why should we believe you? Crazy, crazy. Because here's the thing, as humans, we want proof. We wanna see it with our own eyes. And Jesus says, you're missing the whole point. Believe in me and then you will see things. This is kind of one of the major themes of the Gospel of John. Another thing is, is we often want temporary fixes. Jesus, do a trick for me right now to keep my faith intact. And that's a really bad approach to Jesus. What we're gonna see in this chapter, in the rest of this chapter, is there's a similarity between this chapter and Exodus chapter 16, when the, the, the children of Israel, when the people of God were coming out of Egypt on their way to the promised land, they kept complaining about this manna, miraculous bread that was being supplied to them from heaven. They kept complaining about that. And Jesus is saying, look, 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 look. You guys keep looking for physical bread. I'm trying to give you true bread that will give you eternal life, but you have to want to see the spiritual. If you want to live forever, you, 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 have to, you have to have a desire to see the truth. And they weren't there yet. So Jesus is going to be very, very redundant in this next part. He's virtually gonna say the same thing about six different times in a couple of different ways. But look how straightforward he is. Then they said, sir, give us this bread always. He says, I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. No one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the one who sent me that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's number two. Therefore, the Jews started grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came from heaven. They were saying, isn't this Jesus, son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know, how can, he, how can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one who comes to me unless the father draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It's number three. 
It is all written in the prophets and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has listened and has learned from the Father comes to me, not that anyone has seen the Father except from the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now that's gonna open up a, a big Pandora's box here in a second. So here is the crowd's response. And again, this would have been great if it was a sincere response. Jesus says, I don't want you to have temporary bread. I want you to have permanent bread. They go, yes, give us eternal bread. Now, Jesus was not talking about literal bread. He was talking about spiritual bread. And here is the problem with Christianity. I mean that facetiously. Here is the problem with Jesus, again, facetiously. We love the idea of Jesus. We love the idea of Christianity. We love the idea of the Bible until the Bible challenges how we live. We love the idea of Jesus until Jesus tells us that our desires are not right, that we have to consume this spiritual bread on his terms, that it is his ways and his will. And so again, the world loves the idea of Christianity until Christianity starts telling me how I am to live my life. And in verse 35, Jesus makes it crystal clear. They say, give us this eternal bread. And he goes, I am the bread. I mean, like, it's so clear. You keep, we're gonna quit beating around the bush. I'm the thing you need. I am what you need for eternal life. And this is the most simple way to us to talk about salvation and theology. It is, it is this, very simple. Anyone that comes to Jesus and believes in Jesus will never hunger and thirst again. That is not talking about physical hunger and thirst. That is talking about spiritual and eternal hunger and thirst. So when we say believe on him, we have to clarify what that means. Just having an intellectual knowledge that Jesus is the savior does not save us. Believing encompasses obedience. It encompasses commitment. And we're still gonna make mistakes. We're still gonna do things wrong every once in a while. But God sustains us. He shows us grace. He walks with us, but we have to consume the bread of life. And then we get to verse 37. Boy, Christians love fighting over this stuff. We would rather fight with other Christians on non-essential issues than go out and tell people who don't know who Jesus is who Jesus is. And this is the main thing that we like to fight about. We love this. I don't love this. Some of you may love this. Verse 37 brings up the conversation of predestination versus free will. And there's one camp of people still to this day who say we are predestined. There is nothing we can do. It is all God's decision to save us. There is an opposing camp that says, no, 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 no. It is all up to us, not the salvation part, but to choose to be saved. And the problem with this is, if you're on one extreme or the other, the problem is, is that the Bible simultaneously teaches both. Well, Corey, that doesn't make sense to me. That's because you're not God. 
That's why that doesn't make sense to you. So does the Bible say that God chooses us? 100%. We just read it. We're gonna see it again at the end of this chapter. Does the Bible say that we have to answer that call? Yes, 100%. And we're gonna see that again at the end of this chapter as well. Don't read it. We'll all be shocked when we get there together. The, <laughs> the other thing that Jesus brings up, right, and that people argue about all the time, Jesus says, and when I call you and you receive this, I'll never cast you out. Then this opens up another big ball of wax that we like to fight about. Can we lose our salvation? When people ask me that, I hate this question. Absolutely hate this question. I'm gonna tell you why. We are the bride of Christ, which gives us this analogy that we are married to Jesus, right? He is our husband. Now, imagine if you're in this room, you're a husband, and you're a good husband. You're washing the dishes one day. You're sitting there washing the dishes, and your wife walks up periodically. Let's say she does this like once or twice a week. Your wife walks up and goes, hey, um, is there anything I could do that would make you want to divorce me? Um, okay, yeah. And so this, this happens several times. Your wife just keeps walking up and saying, do you ever think we could get divorced? Now, if you're a husband in here and you have a brain in your head, after a while you would say, what is my wife doing that she would keep asking this question? Correct? You'd be a little suspicious of the motives and intentions behind that question. But as Christians who are supposed to be married to Christ, we continually say, well, can I get divorced from God? That is a horrible question to ask. If you're in a healthy marriage, the D word should never come up. So people go, well, I don't think you can lose it. I do think you can lose it. Well, I never think they had it in the first place. And here is the bottom thing. We need to replace the question of can we lose it with are we walking daily with Christ? And if we are walking daily with Christ, if we are living by the teachings of the word of God, your salvation should never be a concern for you. You're fine. If we are not living by the teachings of the Bible, something is wrong regardless of what camp you fall into. But if we are walking, does that offend anyone here? I hope it doesn't. Because whenever people try to justify not living for Christ, but they call themselves a Christian, I have, I have some tremendous theological issues with that. There is something very, very broken there, but so many people have bought into that in the United States. Okay, we'll get a little bit, little bit more to that here in a minute. Then we get to uh, another huge theological thing that's, that's, that's not complicated, it's very simple, that Jesus brings up and he talks about perseverance that those who are in me will persevere. And we call this the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, which again, sounds super complicated, but it's not. All that means is, is if we have a relationship with Jesus, we grow in that relationship and he sustains us. He, 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 he gives us the ability to live the way we're supposed to live. And whenever we die, or if he comes back before we die, we inherit eternal life. Now, True perseverance or true relationship with Jesus will have evidence to that. Jesus said, you will know a tree by its fruit. So if someone walks around saying, I'm an apple tree, but there's nothing but oranges, it'd be kind of weird to see a tree walking around, wouldn't it? But if a tree did walk around and they say, I'm, I'm, I'm an apple tree, but there's only oranges on the branches, it's not an apple tree, it's, it's an orange tree. In the same way, if we walk around with the title of Christ, but we do not live by the teachings and principles of Christ, we can deduce that we are, we are not that. And so true perseverance of the saints, true saints, will have evidence. We will see the fruit of the, of, of the Holy Spirit come through them, okay, and how they live. Now, this is where it starts getting fun. So we learn, we'll learn in the next part, 
that Jesus is doing all of this teaching in the synagogue. So not only have the, the, the common folks crowded around Jesus, the religious elite are also listening to Jesus teach all this. And again, there is this parallel between Exodus chapter 16, the grumbling about this manna from heaven, and, and this chapter. And I threw up Numbers 11. If you, if you just wanna read one of those crazy Old Testament stories, when they were grumbling about, the, about miraculous bread from heaven, a lot of the, the Israelites coming out on the way to the promised land, why just bread all the time? We want meat. And then God gives them so much meat that a bunch of them get sick and die. It's pretty interesting in Numbers 11. The bottom line is this though. The Jews who were coming out of Egypt, they didn't like the way that God did things. They didn't like his approach. And then the Jews, the religious leaders standing in front of Jesus, <laughs> were arguing with God in the flesh about theology. Isn't this fascinating? And we think this is fascinating now when we read that, that people would sit here and argue with God about the nature of God. We find that ridiculous. Now let's look at our current day and age though. We have a lot of self-professing Christians that do not believe the teachings of the word of God. We have a lot of self-professing Christians who will say, well, I don't believe Jesus would condemn that. I don't believe Jesus would do that. I don't believe Jesus would say this or that. And my instant response is, where do you get that idea? If you can show it to me here, I'll get on your bandwagon. But if you can't show it to me in the word of God, I, I, don't, I don't take what you're saying seriously. So there are a lot of people now who will argue theology with the very word of God. They will argue against God's own word and profess to be of God. And that's crazy. And the reason why people do that is sometimes God doesn't meet our expectations of him. But that's the thing, he's the creator, guys. We are the creation. He doesn't bend to us, it's the other way around. He is not made in our image, we are to be made in his. So we have to humble ourselves. And so this is interesting. Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 54, a prophecy that they will be taught by God. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is standing in front of the religious people and he quotes Isaiah 54. The reason why he did that, he's saying, I'm here. God in the flesh is trying to teach you and you can only be saved if God draws you and Jesus was trying to draw them in right there. But here's the thing with salvation. We can only be saved if God draws us. How do we know that? Because Jesus says it. We can only be saved if God draws us. But the other side of that is, is we have to agree to that. So it's just like going back to the marriage analogy. If a man walks up to a woman and says, will you marry me? So he has presented the marriage to her, but she still has to say yes. And then the wedding, the, the relationship is consummated on the wedding night. This is very similar to our relationship with God. He invites us to the wedding, but we have to say yes. We have to have that relationship with him. And this is what Jesus is trying to teach these people right there. And then you have to love Jesus's style. And so Jesus reminds these people, okay, your ancestors, they looked for quick, temporary, physical fixes, and it didn't work for them. It didn't work for them. And so he's saying, I am the bread of life. I am what you need to live forever. And then to really get their attention, at the end he says, and to do that, you have to eat my flesh. People would have been like, what? 
right? Someone's sipping coffee, they spit it out in the back all over the, the Pharisee right in front of them. Shocked them. What is he talking about? Cannibalism up there? Now, some people read this and they are saying, well, he's referring to communion, the Lord's Supper. He couldn't be. The Lord's Supper hadn't happened yet. So he's not directly referring to the Lord's Supper at this point. Here's the other reason why I don't believe Jesus is referring to the Lord's Supper. If he says, if you eat my flesh, spoiler alert, and drink my blood, that you'll have eternal life, that would suggest that just doing communion saves your soul. And it doesn't. I believe in communion. We've done it at every service for the last 14 years. I believe in it, but it is symbolic. That does not save you. A relationship with Jesus saves you. So when Jesus says, you have to consume my flesh, he's not talking about you have to take communion. He's saying you have to consume him. What do I mean by that? He's saying you have to ingest what I'm teaching you. You have to ingest my nature. You have to ingest the, the principles that Jesus teaches us. That is what saves us. That's what changes us that we, if you will, pardon the, the, the horrible analogy, but we chew on him, right? We ingest him. We feed on him. So again, if I didn't offend you earlier, this slide will, will probably do that. What, what John alludes to and what I think Jesus alludes to is that faith is more than just a one-time thing. Here it comes. Do you guys know that the sinner's prayer is not biblical? Do you guys know that? It may be Baptist, but it's not biblical. And, and listen, I have nothing against the, the Southern Baptist Church. Mike that, that teaches here, he, he has a master's degree from a Southern Baptist seminary. He's not here today, so I can take shots at him. But, but do you know that the sinner's prayer is not in the Bible? Do you know that asking Jesus into your heart is not in the Bible? So the question is, well, why do we do those two things? And what those two things have done and if you think I'm just completely off my rocker, J.D. Greer, who's a Southern Baptist pastor, wrote a book called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart a couple of years ago, Southern Baptist. David Platt, who's a big Southern Baptist guy, taught a whole message at the Southern Baptist Convention against the sinner's prayer because it's not biblical. And the reason why these gentlemen have taken a stance on those things is because thinking that we can say a prayer one time when we're at middle school camp and live however we want is, is giving a lot of people a false sense of security and salvation. You Methodists in the room are like. <laughs> so here's the bottom line. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the gospels does Jesus just say, hey, just believe in me one time and go do whatever you wanna do. It is living in him. Not just once at our initial point of salvation, not just when we're in trouble. Jesus says, ingest me all the time. That means that true faith is a mindset. True faith is a lifestyle, and true faith impacts everything we do. It impacts how we raise our kids. It impacts how we have our marriage. It, it, it impacts how we work. It impacts with how we speak to people. It should impact and permeate absolutely everything we do. When we feed on the eternal, we start to act like the eternal one. Okay, all right, next part. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood 
has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father, I highlighted this part, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not the manna your ancestors ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. So because most of the crowd could not get past the physical, they couldn't see the spiritual, they could only see the physical. They wanted their physical needs met. Jesus says, the only way your needs are going to be met is if you eat my flesh. And they're like, okay, this guy wants us to come like take a bite out of his arm. What is happening here? How can he give us flesh to eat? At this point, Jesus is not just talking about uh, uh, consuming him or ingesting him. When he brings up blood, Jesus is starting to point towards the cross as well. So it is a relationship with Jesus that saves our soul. It is by the means of him shedding his blood that gives us that opportunity. And so he is starting to point to that as well. And again, you have to love Jesus's style. Jesus knew that these people were freaking out over this whole cannibalism analogy that he uses. So instead of like most American pastors who would be like, oh, hey, I'm so sorry I offended you guys. Please don't walk away. Let me use a different analogy. Jesus goes, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. I don't know if he did the finger points, but that would have been a nice addition. <laughs> so at this point, not only does Jesus say something that if, if you're not looking through it at a spiritual lens, it just seems gross, eating flesh, right? He says, drinking blood. This would have been against the law, which drinking blood should be against the law. But, but it, he was also now advocating breaking the law, they thought. So again, this has nothing to do with literal flesh and blood. I don't even believe this has anything to do with communion yet. This has to do with ingesting Jesus, his teachings, principles, things like that. And, and, and the blood that would be shed on the cross. And then he says something that I think is just profound and great and simple. The one who feeds on me, feeds, recurring, will live. So verse 56 and 57 imply that yes, there is a point in time where we are saved. When we turn away from our sin and we, we consciously choose to follow Jesus, we are saved in that faith. But from that initial point of salvation, we're not done. We are to continue. In fact, I'd say that's the starting line, not the finish line. I think Peter and Paul would agree with me on that. That we not only drink of him once, we are to continually drink of him, to be regenerated. And part of that process is what we call sanctification. Fancy word, but again, it's simple. What that means is over time, we build that relationship with Jesus. We start to think like him act more like him, look at others the way Jesus looks at people, and we are used by him. And this happens over time, and this should be our aspiration. Here's the problem, though, and I think this last part is the linchpin to this whole chapter. The problem is this, though, it takes commitment, and we don't like that. Therefore, many of his disciples heard this, and they said, this teaching is hard. 
Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, asks them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and are life, but there are some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the one who would betray him. He said, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. Let me pause there for a second. Have you guys not seen the great exodus of, of former professing believers in the United States now saying they do not believe? We'll get to that here in a second. So Jesus said to the 12, you don't wanna go away too, do you? Simon Peter, Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus replied to them, didn't I choose the 12? Yet one of you is a devil. He was referring to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, one of the 12, because he was going to betray him. Fascinating stuff. Again, to me, this may be the most provocative statement in this entire chapter. Listen, Jesus, the bread of life, the son of God, God in flesh, stands before these people and he says, I am the key to eternal life. And what is their response? This is too difficult. This is too hard. It's not hard to understand because the, the, the lesson is complicated. It's hard, to, huh, I say this all the time, it's hard to see God clearly when we're constantly thinking about ourselves. And that's why the people didn't understand. And what did they do? Many disciples walked away. Do you know what we, we, do you know what we need to know and, and we need to think about with, with honesty and sincerity? Just because we profess that we are Christians does not mean that we are disciples of Jesus. A title does not make you such. Do you wanna know what the definition of Christian is? Jesus gives us a definition in Luke chapter nine. How convenient, right? This is the definition of what it means to follow Jesus Christ according to Jesus Christ. To follow requires denying self, taking up a cross, that means being sacrificial in how we live and following his commands. For us to say that we are Christians, but we are not denying self, we are not living sacrificially, and we are not following the commands of Jesus, to say we're a Christian but we're not doing those things is ridiculous. It's ludicrous, according to whom? According to Jesus himself. This is what it means to follow Christ. And this is offensive, this, this really offends people. Jesus turns around to his professing followers and he just says, do I offend you? Does this offend you? And here is the thing about the biblical Jesus. The biblical Jesus, biblical Jesus is hyper offensive. And in a culture that, that is so weak and shallow as ours, true biblical teaching is hyper offensive. And even people who profess Christianity love Jesus until they get to parts of the Bible, if they dare pick up the book, that tells them that they have to live differently, then they do not like that Jesus. Jesus. 
Whenever we start defining right and wrong, whenever we start talking about things like repentance or obedience or consequence to actions, we don't really dig that Jesus that much. So this has become extremely offensive. And the reason why this has become so offensive in our culture is we in the United States have elevated ourselves to God's. And you'd say, Corey, that's really extreme and ridiculous. Hold on, let me challenge that for a second. If I say that I can determine what is moral and immoral, if I can say that I can determine what is true and false, I have put myself in the position of the creator God. I, Corey, nor you, any of you, right? Put insert your name. None of us have the ability to determine what is right and wrong. Only the creator can do that. None of us can determine what is true and false. Only the creator can do that. And anyone who assumes that position is trying to assume the position of God. And we get offended when anyone tells us that we're not. This is the culture that you live in. This is the culture that you are raising your children in right now. And so Jesus said this, the spirit is the one who gives life. I love this. The flesh doesn't help at all. (laughs) Any of you who've lived a little bit of life, we know the flesh doesn't help at all. It is nothing but a problem. This means, what Jesus means is this, that if we have a desire to know God, God gives us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit helps us understand the teachings and principles of Jesus and helps us to live those things out. What do I mean by that? And and, and listen, I'm not making fun of anyone or, or trying to think that we're superior to anyone. If you were to take a stone cold atheist and break open the simple teachings of Jesus and the gospel of, let's say, Matthew, Things like the first will be last and the last will be first. To someone without the Holy Spirit, they will read that and go, what the heck does this mean? This makes absolutely no sense. To the one that has the Holy Spirit of God in them, it makes all the sense in the world. If I put myself last, God will elevate me to first. It it is so simple, it is so clear. Jesus spoke in parables, things that little children could understand, but the most intelligent people, it was beyond them because they didn't have his spirit with them. They didn't have a desire to know God so they couldn't understand the things of God. But when we have a desire to know God, he gives us not only the ability to understand the simple but brilliant teachings of the word of God, he gives us the ability to live these things out. But if we are just living by our own intellect, by our own flesh, it is impossible for us to live a life that understands and therefore honors God. Now again, a very provocative thing at the end of this chapter as many of the so-called, the masses who just got miraculously fed by Jesus not that long ago, they all start to walk away because Jesus says it's not always gonna be easy. And as they walk away, Jesus turns around to the 12. He says, are you guys gonna go too? And Peter gives the perfect answer. (laughs) Where else would we go? To whom else would we go? You are the key to eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. And again, as Christians, we all say, amen. But if we believe that in our times of stress and pressure and when people are walking away with us, where do we go to find fulfillment? Even as professing Christians, a lot of times we don't go to Jesus. We go to a drink or a joint or we go to porn or we go to overeating, or we go to distraction, or we go to something else to fill that void. So even though we we know here, we have to know here that there is no other solution other than Christ himself. Now imagine, 
And maybe you are in this room and this is the first time you've ever heard it. Imagine you were reading the Gospel of John for the first time, you get to the end of chapter six, and you're like, holy smokes, one of his 12 is going to stab him in the back? Now this gets us back to, to, to this Judas betraying Jesus opens up a slew of questions. One of those questions is why did Jesus put that evil into Judas? Why did Jesus let this evil take place? Listen, evil is never a result of anything of Jesus. The culprit of the evil that Judas eventually does is his own heart. Here's the other very, very interesting thing. I told you this was coming. We talk about predestination versus free will. Look at this. Jesus says, I chose all of you. You have been chosen, predestined, you 12. Yet one of you is a devil. Jesus says, I chose you, but one of you has chosen to follow someone else. Isn't that interesting? We see both at the end of this chapter. So we talked a lot about consuming Christ, right? Of course, this is not literal cannibalism. Did you guys know that one of the reasons why the Roman Empire hated the Christians is they thought they literally ate people? They would take communion and the Romans would be like, you know they're into cannibalism, right? They missed it, they completely missed it. It was not about eating flesh and blood, it was about taking communion. It's about consuming Christ. So Jesus tells us to consume him, his flesh, his blood, and it is only by consuming him that we are saved and changed. Now again, this is not literal, literal cannibalism. We know that Jesus is referring to, he's saying consume the knowledge I'm giving you, consume the teachings, the principles, my nature, how I am telling you to live, consume those things and you will be saved and changed. So again, the question, the natural question will be, well, how do we do that? I say this virtually every single weekend that we gather in this place. The way that we consume Christ, the way that we build a relationship with Christ is through prayer. You have to talk to him. If you are married in this room, I'm gonna tell you the key to a successful marriage. It's really, really simple. Communicate. Communicate, that's it. That is the make or break factor in a good marriage, communication. It's the make or break factor with a good relationship with God as well. Communicate. Talk to him, pray. Read the word of God. It is impossible to follow the commands of Jesus if we don't read the word of God and find out what those commandments are. Read the word of God. Meditate on God. I don't mean like, you know, getting like some weird pretzel position and, and, and uh, you know, that's not what I mean. What I mean is turn the radio off sometimes on the way to work and just sit in silence and think about the things of God. Maybe God may speak to you in that time. Pray a little bit, sit in silence, meditate, think on the things of God. This is how we consume Christ. And when we consume Christ, listen, this all leads, this all connects, we will be sustained. So we don't have to worry about our eternity. Again, we need to replace the question of can I lose this with am I consuming Jesus every day? I often tell people they need to pray every day. I've gotten to the point in my personal life, I need to pray eight times a day. I'm not even saying that exaggerating, like exaggerating. Every kind of moment that I have, because I know that I'm a train wreck without Jesus. Hey Jesus, I'm about to do this meeting, will you help me? Hey Jesus, I'm about to meet with this person, will you help me? Hey Jesus, I gotta do this thing. Hey Jesus, every time before I get on this stage, hey Jesus, make sure I don't say anything stupid, right? And sometimes like, it's me, it's not him. But <laughs> I pray about it. 
Because it is in that consumption, that consuming Jesus every day, that we grow, that we persevere. And then again, our consumption of Jesus should produce fruit. <laughs> if you're ever at work and you're like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, people are like, really, you? That's a bad thing. <laughs> that, that <laughs> if people are shocked at that news, something is wrong. <laughs> and so we should be living in such a way to where the evidence of Jesus in our life should, should be very clear to people. Again, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit is joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, these kinds of things. We should be demonstrating these. The Bible says that we will be known by how we love each other. So if we don't love other people very well, we're not looking like Christ. So these things should be evident in our life. That blesses us, it blesses others, blesses God. Now, is it easy? No. If anyone ever tells you, if you, I said this last week, if you ever find your way in a church and they're like, man, it's all about health and wealth and prosperity and it's good all the time. I said, just make sure your wallet's still there because that's what they're really aiming for. If you go into a church and they tell you that it's all about blessings, ah, just be too blessed to be stressed. I hate that phrase. Jesus was pretty stressed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Are you saying that he wasn't blessed? He's Jesus. It's a bad quote. Take that down out of your kitchen when you get home. Don't have that. Burn that piece of Hobby Lobby wood. It's bad theology. Throw that mug away. <laughs> Following Jesus can be quite tough. But let me tell you, it's also amazing. You know what I've learned in my, my 43 years, my, my short 43 years? <laughs> the older you get, the more, you know, anyways. Uh, I've learned that nothing good, nothing worth having doesn't come with a little blood and sweat. Is it hard to be a Christian? Man, it's tough. It's gonna get tougher, but it's amazing. It is, it is a blessing. But to truly follow Jesus, we have to deny ourselves. We have to be sacrificial people, and we have to do what the Bible tells us to do. Whenever people say, man, I love Jesus, well, do you follow his commands? Well, you know, grace. Hold on. When I get a little bit further on in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Jesus says that. For me to say that I love Jesus, but I don't do what he tells me to do, Jesus would say, you don't love me. But here's the thing. Though it is difficult at times to be a Christian, our sacrifice now will change our lives for the better. Not only does it change our lives for the better now, just because it's difficult doesn't mean that it's not better. It will also set us up for eternity. You know what's interesting about those prosperity churches and the ones that lie to you and tell you it's all about health and wealth and all those things? If we will live sacrificially in this life, we'll walk on streets of gold. We won't even care about precious stones. Our walls will be made out of those. We're not gonna care about health because we're gonna live for eternity in perfect, perfect bodies. And so we, we will inherit those things, but that doesn't mean we're necessarily meant to have them in this life all the time. The sacrifice is worth it. And then here is the big question that we need to hang out on for a second. Do you know what American culture is right now? Do you know what America is right now? We are a huge social experiment. What do I mean by that? What we have done, I wanna say subconsciously, but it's not, it was very much on purpose, is in America right now, we have opened up any boundaries of, of any walk of life. 
We say there are no restrictions. There is no restrictions on what love is. There is no restrictions on what we can do to our bodies. There are no restrictions on our thoughts. There is no restrictions on the definition of truth or morality or right and wrong. We've completely lifted all of those restrictions in the pursuit of self, in the pursuit of contentment and fulfillment. But my question for anyone who says, why should we have any limitations? My question is simply this, what has the pursuit of, of unlimited power, what has it yielded us? What has the pursuit of money and materialism, what has it given us? What has the, the, the complete open floodgates on sex and sexuality and gender, what has it given us? What has a life of just constantly pursuing comfort given us? What has intoxication given us? or irresponsibility or apathy? Have these things made us better people? Have these things given us more clarity? The answer is a, is a resounding no. Have you not seen what's happening in San Francisco right now? One of the most expensive and used to be one of the most beautiful cities in America. And now it's too dangerous for tourists to go to. When you fly into the airport, they tell you not to rent a car because that pretty much ensures that you'll get mugged and broken into and possibly beat or killed. It's gotten that dangerous in San Francisco. It's gotten to where people can't park their cars on the streets because other people break in the windows and three or four people will sleep in other people's cars at night because there's not home, homes for homeless people because there's all these atrocious things happening. In the, in, the, in the name of lifting all barriers, right? Even authority. Let's, let's not have police anymore and let's see how this works out. Now you can't go to a mall in San Francisco without the fear of being jumped by gangs who don't even wanna steal anything. They just wanna beat the junk out of you for fun. Listen, I'm not making fun of those people and I'm gonna tell this story and I'm not making fun of this, this individual either. There's a reality TV show, I honestly can't think of the name of it, about a, a young boy that went through every sex change possible to become a young girl, everything, everything removed, things added, everything gone through, the hormone therapies, all this stuff. And so there was an episode that just came up recently where this formerly young man, now young woman, is crying on this bed and her mom's holding her. The mom should be thrown in jail, by the way. The mom's holding her. And over and over again, this young person just keeps saying, I don't feel like myself. Now, I'm not saying this to be mean. I'm saying this because I saw that and it broke my heart. Because this kid is a victim of a false ideology that says just pursue yourself and your feelings and you will find contentment. And it is failing us. It is failing us. So the true follower of Jesus, listen to me. The true follower of Jesus has to reach a place to where we know our only place that we can go is Christ. Where else will we go? What else will we do? It is only then that we can truly follow him. Now listen, we can all amen that and we can say yes to that, but we're all gonna walk out of this building today and you're gonna go back out to temptation. You're gonna go back out to struggles you're going to go back out to maybe your bills aren't getting paid. Maybe that really attractive woman at work keeps flirting with you and you're married. You're gonna go back out into these things. 
And in those moments of temptation and weakness, we have to sober up, maybe literally, maybe just spiritually, and say, where else can I go to find contentment other than Christ? It has to be him. That's where I have to run or it will fall short. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you are in this room and maybe you are not a believer, you're looking, you're curious, you got questions, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Greg is up here. Greg will do his very best to answer any questions that you might have, maybe give you some resources, set up a time to meet with you, whatever the case may be. Please don't be embarrassed or, or feel awkward. If you have any questions, please come talk to Greg. We also have men and women on both sides of the stage if you need anything, any prayer, prayer for yourself, prayer for a loved one, prayer for a situation, it doesn't matter. Please let someone pray with you, okay? Don't do it alone. The last thing is there is communion all the way around this room. Wherever you see a lamp on a table and then the majority of these posts in the middle, there is bread and wine. And that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That we are to take that in remembrance of what he did for us on the cross. All of you are welcome to take that as long as you have asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, okay? Let me pray for you real fast. Father, Lord, we love you. God, we thank you, Lord. I pray that you keep your hand on all of us in this room. Lord, all of us get into tough spots. All of us have moments of weakness. All of us are tempted, God. Just like you said in the Gospel of Matthew, I pray, Lord, that you keep us far from temptation. Deliver us from the evil one, Lord. God, help us to run to you in those moments of frustration or chaos or weakness. God, even if we've already made the mistake, Lord, let us run to you for forgiveness and help. God, Lord, let us know that we have nowhere else to go. You're it. Bless my brothers and sisters in this room. Keep them strong till we meet again. We love you and we thank you. Pray all these things in your name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Love you very much. You're welcome to help yourself.